Thank you very much. Good morning for your kind welcome. I appreciate it. I don't take it for granted that I would ever be invited back anywhere. And uh, to have become such a frequent attender of this uh, uh, college is something that I am very grateful for. And I think you know how much I enjoy the scary challenge of speaking to students. And this morning is no exception to that rule. I don't know why you had that dreadful picture of me. I look like an AIDS victim uh, there. In, um, uh, you would see, if you saw the arm sort of hanging, distended from my body, it looks like they're, they're, every muscle that was ever potential for humanity had already atrophied by the age of 20. And uh, it, sometime if you see the photograph properly and you look at the girl on my left-hand side, you've got to say, I don't know how in the world he pulled that off because... Uh, she really is very special, which, of course, she is. That's my wife. Now, I invite you to turn to the first Psalm, Psalm 1. Like Sam Donaldson, Sam Retigliano, Psalm 1. I believe you say Psalm as if it was written S-O-M. I don't know why you do that, but... Um, it's, it's always been a psalm to me. What I'd like to do in the three sessions that I've been given the opportunity of speaking to you is to address with you essentially the question of the nature and necessity of practical godliness, the absolute essentials of what it means to turn our profession of life in the Lord Jesus Christ into a lifestyle that is distinctive in our generation. That's our brief. We'll come at it, as it were, from three different angles. But as I thought about it, that's essentially the emphasis that uh, is laid on my heart for this morning and then tonight and, God willing, tomorrow morning. So let me read for you the first psalm. I'm reading from the NIV. I apologize if that's not what you have in front of you. Um, but I don't think it will be too dissimilar to your own text. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, I pray that as we have our Bibles open on our laps before us, that you will open your word to our lives that by the Spirit of God you will open our lives to your Word and that you may find in us uh, receptive hearts and genuine desires to follow hard after you. Will you teach us as we speak and as we hear so that we may know ourselves to be in the presence of the living God? For it's in the name of Christ that we ask these things. Amen. Psalm 1 is obviously the gateway to the whole book of Psalms. Uh, essentially, what we have in the Psalms is the church's hymn book. And the very first word of the first Psalm introduces us to a subject which is intensely relevant to every individual, namely the subject of happiness. For that is really what the word blessed means. It means, of course, an intense, godly kind of happiness, but nevertheless, it means happiness. It's essentially the same word that we find Jesus using at the commencement of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, and he uses it repeatedly, expressing the nature of genuine happiness. There's not a person in a room like this this morning, there's no one that we rub shoulders with as we walk the streets who's not interested in happiness. Indeed, every so often when we find men and women surveyed about what they want out of life, always in the top two or three, is a quest for happiness. 
given that that is true of humanity and has been down through the years, we might think that we could have safely assumed that after all these many opportunities to discover happiness, that men and women would actually have been there, that they might have mastered the art of happiness. But in actual fact, the very reverse is the case. It would seem that the nearer our destination, the more we slip away from it. And although people write of happiness and express longings after happiness, many of them haven't got a clue concerning what it would mean. Certainly not in the outline form that we're given here in the first psalm. And indeed, some of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ and who attend a college like this and who go through certain routines and are duty-bound to certain practices are frankly not some of the happiest people that ever walk the streets. Our roommates know that. Those of us who are rub shoulders with such individuals become aware of the fact that whatever it is, that somehow or another, the joy of the Lord is not our strength. And we can't sing ourselves into it or pump ourselves into it. There was a fellow in Britain some years ago. His name was Ken Dodd. He had strange hair. It stuck up like uh, Don King's hair. And uh, he used to have a, a, a duster, one of those little funny little... Uh, uh, I don't know what they're called, but those strange dusters that you dust ornaments with. They're made of feathers or something like this. And he called it his tickling stick. He was a kind of bizarre individual who held sway on the, te on the television for some time. And he had a little song, and he used to come out and sing it. And it was his theme song, and he used to sing, Happiness, happiness, the greatest gift that I possess. I thank the Lord that I've been blessed with more than my share of happiness. And then the IRS started to investigate his tax dodges and his, and his tickling stick diminished and his smile diminished and it was clear that although he made these great protestations about being happy, he didn't have much of a clue. Witness the tragic environment in which we live our days. Take any newspaper from this morning and read the events of the last 24 hours. You can find in there the tragic story of a 10-year-old boy who, having told his friends at school with repeated emphasis that he didn't really like living, and his brother found him in his closet hanging by the belt that held up his trousers, stone dead at age 10. Rub shoulders with the singles population of our world. Some of you are in it. Come with me to Cleveland and to the uh, singles bars at 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon or even a Tuesday afternoon or 5 o'clock, whenever it is, I don't know. They call it happy hour. It's really a strange name because you never saw such a miserable bunch of people in all of your life, all sitting around on stools, forlornly gazing at one another. Uh, just a dreadful, horrible predicament to find oneself in. Sit in the departure lounges of the average airport and watch people wander the world in the vain hope that this particular trip that they're about to take will introduce them to nirvana. Indeed, when you travel even just a wee bit, it's amazing how gloomy people are, isn't it? You get up in the morning, you drive in your car, and you're just confronted by ferocious animosity. And that's yourself you're talking about, but apart from anyone else. I mean, it's just incredible. I got on the plane uh, on uh, Sunday afternoon in Cleveland, and the man was sitting in the aisle seat. I had to go into the window seat. I said to him as nicely as I could, do you, do you think, uh, would it be okay if, you know, I got into my seat? He didn't say anything, he just looked at me. He stood up, he leaned against the thing like this. Did you get that one? And then I struggled with my bag to try and put it in the overhead bin because I couldn't check my luggage because I wanted to get to the celebrations at Grace Church on Sunday night. And as I struggled to get my bag in the thing, which I couldn't do, I eventually had the ignominy of having to take it down and start taking my clothes out of the bag, you know. Fortunately, I was pulling trousers and not underwear, but I was pulling all this stuff all over the place. And while this is going on, as I struggled, he never lifted a hand to help me. He did anything. He just, he just stood like this. And uh, then as I struggled into my seat, and, and he had an accent. He was foreign. Obviously, everyone who has an accent is foreign. And... Uh, and uh, he, he says, yes, he says, you can't smoke on the plane now, but you can bring a piano if you want. I said, yeah, like I just stuck a piano in the overhead bin. 
And then he started getting me ticked off. Now, I'm not going to be happy, you know. I'm sort of I'm thinking things like, you should be glad I didn't bring our grand piano. Then you would have been, you would have been standing around for a long time. Neil Diamond, you know, um, they're coming to America, you know him? Um, in that song that I've never really understood, I am, I said, he gets to the bottom of the feeling of many people in relation to the subject of happiness in, in words that go like this. Did you ever read of a frog who dreamed of being a king and then became one? Well, except for the name and a few other changes, if you talk about me, the story's the same one. But I've got an emptiness deep inside, and I've tried, but it won't let me go. And I'm not a man that likes to swear, but I've never cared for the sound of being alone. The human dilemma expressed in the words of Shakespeare, what is a man if the chief good and action of his time be but to sleep and feed a beast no more. And when we open the pages of Holy Scripture, we discover that when man is put into a right relationship with God, one of the things that becomes a constituent element of his life, of the life of that young woman, is that they become happy. Not a happiness that is devoid of holiness, but a happiness that is determined by living in the epicenter of God's distinctive purposes. And let me say right at the beginning, this is the thesis of Scripture. This is the thesis of my talks. There is no peace, no joy, no thrill in all of life like which is to be found in walking in the will of God for your life. There is no other thrill. There is no other benefit. There is nothing that can ever match it. There is nothing that can ever take its place. And it is to this fact that we are addressing our attention here in the first psalm. Now, let me say this. The perspective of the psalmist throughout is that which we would need to turn to the 40th psalm uh, to understand. He writes as one who has been lifted, quotes from verse 2 of Psalm 40, who has been lifted out of the slimy pit and out of the mud and the mire. He has had his feet set on a rock. He's been given a firm place to stand. God has put a new song in his mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. And he says, many will see and fear and put their trust in God. So the writer's experience here in the first Psalm is the experience described in Psalm 40. Some years ago, when I first came to America, somebody taught me a little children's chorus that went like this. Happiness is to know the Savior living a life that's in His favor, within His favor, seeing a change in my behavior. Happiness is the Lord. So as you look at this first time, think of it in terms of a relationship, perhaps in terms of marriage. In getting married, the door to joy and fulfillment opens up. Happiness sustained in marriage is directly related to our companionship and our contentment within the bonds and privileges of marriage. You understand that? You get married and a door of great opportunity opens to you. But not everyone who lives as a married couple enjoys the privileges and benefits of marriage as they might. Why? Because they don't live within the framework of God-ordained marriage they're not contented within it, and they don't cultivate the companionship within it. Why is it that probably if we took an internal survey this morning of this student body, we would find that while most of us are present, not all of us are correct. All of us, to come to this institution, would have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We would say that there was a point in our experience when we became married to Him. But our lives are flat, our routine is dull, our tears are, are, are dry, and our hearts are cold. Why? It has to do with companionship. It has to do with contentment. It has to do with the holiness that attends the expression here in Psalm number 1. So the issue is not how do we 
become happy, but rather, how do we remain happy? The emphasis is not how to believe, but rather upon the way in which the believer behaves and the happiness which attends such a life. So I am very happy to address you on the subject of happiness. And I hope that by the time we're finished, you will be happy that I was happy to talk to you about being happy. And if you're not, then I shall be unhappy, but only for a moment or two. Because I am not here to impress you. And the only benefit that attaches to all of this for all of us is when the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and brings it to our lives. So I am free from any sense of tyranny, any sense of burden, save the burden to be true to this book. The book that Dr. Criswell banged around all yesterday morning. I have it here. He started it off well. He said, this book, and I'm back. Same subject, same theme. That's why it's the Bible conference, I guess. I want to tell you four things about happiness. When we finish these, it's lunch. It's always good to have something to look forward to, isn't it? All right. Number one, happiness is a serious business. Happiness is a serious business. Instead of being introduced to some kind of superficial, subjective, cozy feeling, when we read the first psalm, we're immediately made aware of the fact that the basis of genuine happiness is found in a radical, sober decision. The psalmist obviously doesn't share the 20th century paranoia that pervades many of our churches with anything negative. I'm constantly go to these different churches and they always have brochures and everybody's trying to come up with a clever little gig, you know, about how their church is, what, it, what the deal is. Uh, you know, uh, we have warm hearts for cold noses, you know, that kind of thing. Welcome to the first Bible church of Delaware. We have warm hearts for cold noses. Actually, I just got that from the pet store in Newhall down the road and uh, you would notice that. Or actually uh, from um, uh, McDonald's in, uh, in Newhall, I was quite staggered this morning, I wrote it down, uh, to discover they've got a gigantic banner, have you seen it? It says, we are empowered to do whatever it takes to satisfy you. Now, if that isn't a capitulation to the me generation, then you never heard one. We are empowered to do whatever it takes to satisfy you. You go to some of these churches and that's exactly it, that's their whole gig. All we want to do is satisfy you. We want you to be happy and we want to satisfy you. Therefore, we will make happiness for you our ultimate goal at any cost and you may be sure you'll never have a, you'll never have a bad feeling in here. You'll never feel untoward about things. You'll always feel good because happiness is a superficial business. No, it's not. It's a serious business. The happy man's choices determine what he's doing. And this is registered in verse 1 in three key realms. You'll notice that. The happy man's choice of allegiance is registered and revealed in the way he thinks, in the way he behaves, and where he belongs. Where do you get that from? Well, first of all, blessed or happy is the man, and man is used generically, ladies, so we can use man or woman just as interchanging them with with, uh, biblical conviction. Blessed is the individual who does not, first of all, walk in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, he's got or she's got her head on straight. Because whatever shapes your thinking shapes your life. What you think is what you are. What I think is what I am. What we say may conceal what we think. What we do in our external activities may may convince those around us that we are actually on track when in point of fact we may just be Pharisees. But when the Spirit of God shines into our hearts, it reveals what we think about. And, says the psalmist, the happiness attends the individual whose thinking is not permeated by the thought forms of the wicked. In other words, the aims, the maxims, the principles, the practices of the godless, while they hold out the promise of happiness ultimately 
are rootless and they are fruitless. And the happy individual, the man of holiness, the woman of holiness, doesn't get themselves involved in that kind of thinking. Now, where does the practicality of this come out? It comes out just about every point along the journey. It comes out in everything that is input to our minds. That's why in First Peter, he talks about girding up the loins of your minds. You know, the picture is a clear one. It comes uh, in the Old Testament where the guys used to wear essentially kilts, uh, 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 kind of long kilts, but uh, there's more biblical justification probably for our kilts than some of you are prepared to give us credence for. But anyway, they wore these big long kilts hanging around their ankles. And you remember, I think it's in the book of uh, whatever, that uh, they are to, uh, well, when they eat the Passover, they're to eat of it in haste uh, because they're going to have to split. So the instruction is to gird up all the folds from down below and tuck them in your belt so that when you finish your English muffin, you can split. Because you don't want all this stuff hanging around your feet because you'll trip and fall on your face. Peter says that's the picture. Don't have a bunch of garbage all hanging around your ankles. You'll never run the race. You'll never live for Christ. You can't do that. You've got to gird up the loins of your mind. You've got to make the Philippians 4-8 decision constantly at the magazine rack, at the checkout in the, uh, in the grocery store, in the purchasing of albums and all those other things because what we think is what we are, and garbage in means garbage out. Okay, whatever shapes your thinking shapes your life. We don't walk in that kind of counsel. Secondly, we don't stand in the way of sinners. Not only does the happy man or woman think differently, the happy man or woman consequently behaves differently. There's a progression here. He doesn't walk around in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't allow his mind to be filled with that. And he doesn't take his stand in the way of sinners. You see, it's only when truth transforms our lives and controls our behavior that we can make any realistic claim to be Christ's. It is only when truth transforms our lives and changes our behavior from the inside that we can make any realistic claim to be Christ's. Some people's spurious experience of faith is this. They had an external way of life. They changed it for another external way of life without any regeneration by the Spirit of God. And now they are painstakingly trying to hold on to an outward form while never having had the power of the Spirit of God set them free to live the life they now profess. I'm not going to assume that's true of anyone here, but the, one of the Puritan writers said this, when the tenor of one's ways is like that of the wicked, it is because I am wicked. When the tenor of my ways is like the wicked, it's because I am wicked. Been standing around, young folks, in the way of sinners at all? Oh, I don't expect your roommate to know about it. I'm not concerned about the person next to you this morning. This is just between you and the Lord. This is you and your mind and you and your posture, you and your behavior, you alone in your car, you on vacation, you away from the master's college. How big a gap is there between the real you and the professed you? How happy are you really? Thirdly, the happy individual has got their mind right, got their behavior right, and got their belonging right. They don't belong to the people who sit around with the mockers. They don't belong to the crowd with the mocking cries being a thin disguise for the emptiness of their souls. That doesn't mean we don't have any non-Christian friends. It doesn't mean that the boat has got to be in the water, namely our life's the boat, the water the world. Our boat's got to be in the water, but the water hasn't got to be in the boat. And this is the great challenge for us. If we are absorbed by our culture and are at pains to tell them, hey, we're just like you, then we have an audience, but nothing distinctive to say to them. When we are isolated from our culture, remove ourselves from all those non-Christian people, then we have something to say, but nobody to listen to us. And largely, that's where the church 
has polarized itself down through the years. You have people who are so absorbed in it all. Like I spoke to a young man last week who told me, uh, two weeks ago, he told me he was going to Las Vegas to see the Super Bowl. I said, but isn't the Super Bowl in Atlanta? He says, yeah, but I'm going to see it at Las Vegas. How are you going to see it at Las Vegas? Well, I got invited there by Caesar's Palace. I said, you call yourself a Christian? You're going to go to Caesar's Palace to watch the Super Bowl? Why did they? Why would they ever bring you there? Because in your previous life, you dumped so much money in that place, they've still got you on their mailing list. They want you to come back. Think out Psalm 1, brother. Think it out. And his reaction at first was to say, well, you know, if I don't go and be with those people, I can't influence those people. I told him, hey, you're not strong enough to do squat with those people. So you stay away for now, baby. You know, like baby, baby. And then I'll tell you, I'll tell you when you got your sea legs or your Vegas legs, which is probably never, but for now, he blew me off. He blew me out. He went. It's foolishness. See, he was absorbed. He had an audience but couldn't speak. On the other hand, we've got Pharisees who have got all the rigmarole to speak and they've got nobody to talk to. The happy man manages to affect the balance. You see, the scoffers of our world are very philosophic. They believe themselves to be free from whims and prejudices. And they think that they're the ones who have objectivity under their, under their grasp and that we are the poor dogmatic ignoramuses who would be unable to uh, justify our position given any chance of defense. It isn't true. A little while ago, which is a euphemism for I can't remember when, I was with my wife and my kids in Clearwater Beach. I'd never been there before. I go to Clearwater Beach. I happen to be there at Easter time. Not a good idea. Because at Easter time, they have Easter break at Clearwater Beach. And there was a young man there who had a microphone and he was roaring outside of a cafe while all the crowds wandered by and just abused him. And he was standing there all by himself and he's trying to say, you know, Jesus Christ is the way of life. And he wasn't doing a wonderful job at it. He obviously hadn't planned properly or or certainly not for very long. And the crowds were abusing him and said, oh, yes, and, and the girls are going by and the guys and everything else. And he stood. And half of me said, Man, I don't know why he did that. I mean, why does he want to go ahead and do that? Because I know I should stand next to that guy, but I, I don't want to stand next to him. And I fought this big battle. Eventually, I went over and I stood beside him. Because I didn't want to be lost up with the scoffers. I wanted him to know there's at least one guy out in the crowd that said to him, Hey, brother, you might not be doing a brilliant job, but you're at least prepared to distance yourself from the scoffers. It's an old adage now. But if it were a crime in this country to be a Christian, forget our verbiage. How much evidence would there be in our lives to convict us? Secondly, happiness is a biblical business. The distinction in verse 1 is marked, is matched by the delight in verse 2. You'll notice that. There's a distinction between the godly and the ungodly. Let it always be so. It always must be so. And then we come to part of the key in verse 2. Why is this man or woman like this? What is it that drives them to this end? What is it that sets them apart as distinctive? What is the thing that fuels their mind and undergirds their heart and drives them forward? The answer is given to us. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The wicked have hardened hearts. The wicked have consciences which are stupefied. The wicked have minds which are closed to the truth. How in the world can we ever address the wicked? How in the world will we be ever able to articulate faith to the wicked? And the answer is, in this book, in the law of the Lord. It is here that the truth comes to counteract the foolish counsel of the ungodly. Without our Bibles this morning, young people, it becomes just a case of, 
well, that's just your idea. That's just your idea. That's just what you have to do. And if you think about it, tremendous segments of the church are just exactly there. What are they doing? They're standing shouting at people, shouting at the ungodly. You shouldn't do that. Well, we don't like you feeling like that. Well, we don't care. We hate your guts. Jesus is Lord. We hate your guts. You bunch of scuzzwad sinners. We hate you people for doing that. Well, you've got no right to say that. Look at your ugly face. No, sir, sir. All right? And that's what the world sees. That's what's on CNN. Here come the Christians. What do they do? They shout, they march, they scream, they holler. No, no. The Christians delight in the law of the Lord. The Christians then understand that the the, the truth of Scripture is this, that our words are to be full of grace and seasoned with salt. The Christians are supposed to be like Jesus, who sat down with a lady at a well and he said, Hey, any chance of a drink of water? Some of us wouldn't even have talked to the lady, especially if we knew her from the town. After all, she had had four husbands and she was living with a guy. Right? Jesus said, could I have a drink of water? You know the story from there. Why did he do that? So that she would run into the city and say, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. He wasn't in any doubt about where he was going, but his manner and his approach was delightful. Can I ask you, what place does the Bible have in your life? Honestly. Have you read your Bible today? Have you read what the Lord has to say? This is a chorus. Read each page and you'll find faith and hope and peace of mind. Have you read your Bible today? Have you conducted a children's campaign and gone and taught these little children? Read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day, pray every day. Did you ever hear yourself singing that? Did you ever feel like a hypocrite? Did you ever feel that you were calling the kids to a standard you didn't live to yourself? I want to challenge you. I don't want to discourage you. I just want the best for you, young folks. And I want to tell you this, that unless you, with Thomas Akempis, get in a nook with the book consistently, you'll never make it. Some of you haven't memorized a verse of Scripture in 94. Some of you haven't memorized a verse of Scripture in the whole of 93. Some of you haven't memorized a verse of Scripture since you were brought to faith in Jesus Christ and went through a Foundations of the Faith course. But if you bump into somebody on the streets in L.A., you're going to tell them, hey, the Bible, man, it's so important to me. Oh, yeah. I, in fact, we had a guy in our, in our place, and he was banging it, and I love to bang it, too. In fact, I bang my Bible regularly. It's so important to me. You can stink and sit on it for all I care, but you're never going to absorb its truth. You could tie it around your head and walk around with it. Like the Pharisees, you can get a box and stick it on your forehead and wrap some around your wrist. You think you're going to take it in intravenously? It's not going to happen. There's only one way, to delight in the law of the Lord, to allow its truth to outlive all the detractors. The law of the Lord is perfect. It converts the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. It's more to be desired than gold, yet than much fine gold. It's more precious than the honey in the honeycomb. And the psalmist says, this is it. When that delight is there, he meditates on it. In other words, we consider it with a view to understanding and applying it. Meditation is a mental and spiritual counterpart to physical digestion. It is the important exercise in all of our use of the Bible. 
It is, if you like, chewing the cud. Now, that may not be an immediately attractive thing, but that's what cows do. You sit and watch a cow for a while. Just watch it. Heads up. Just looking the way cows look. Doesn't go down at all, and then all of a sudden, it's chewing. You said to yourself, how's it chewing? It didn't, it didn't get anything. And you know it's not, you know, Wrigley's or anything like that. What's it, what's it chewing? It's chewing stuff it ate earlier. If it hadn't eaten it earlier, it couldn't chew it. It goes, and then it chews it. That's gross. See, if you read your Bible purposefully on a daily basis and take a little bit out, a little, a little bit to chew the cud every day, just a little phrase or whatever it is, write it at the top of your diary, stick it in your purse, do whatever you do with it. Get a little thing that's yours for the day and keep it with you. Then when you're driving, you're at the traffic lights, go like this, and then chew on it for a little while. I mean, you don't have to make that noise, but, but it might help you to remember. And the psalmist says this is what he does. He prayerfully ponders, probes, understands the scriptures, not so that he may have an increase in his knowledge, but so that he may have a change in his life. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's biblical. He's biblical in his thinking. He doesn't have secular ideas and biblical ideas. All of his worldview is permeated by the Bible. When he looks at all the, when he, when he sees this save Willie or save whoever in the world that jolly thing was, he says, now wait a minute, what is that kind of stupidity? What are we talking about here? And then his doctrine of man, you see, which he has meditated upon, allows him to, to, to uh, objectively respond to that. Okay, let's hurry up. Amen, said someone from the third back row. Happiness is a serious business. Happiness is a biblical business. Thirdly, happiness is a fruitful business. Verse 3. I went to a black church in London one time. I may have told you this, so I apologize, but it's so, it's so focused in my mind. And uh, my, I'd been asking my friend at uh, Bible school if he would take me to his church. It was called the Church of God in Dollis Hill, London. He told me, he said, you're not ready to come yet. I asked him another few months later, no, you're not ready to come yet. Eventually, one Sunday morning, he took me. I went to this church. It had started before anybody started it. There's a guy playing the drums over here. A guy had a bass over here. Someone banging something over there. It was just, it was unbelievable. It was, it was jumping. There were no pastors in sight or anything. The people had already kicked it in. I was the only white person in the whole place. And it got going, and the pastor came out, and he preached on Psalm 1. Actually, he said, before he started preaching, he announced, he said, we have the brother Beggs with us this morning. Which I said, oh, you know, that's bad. He introduced me. I don't know if they'll notice me. but And, uh, and uh, you know, I was trying to go incognito and stuff. But And he said, and we'll just have a word. We'll just uh, have him come up and give us a word which was really nothing that I had planned. And I remember I stood up and said, looked out on all these people, and I said, won't heaven be a wonderful place? And as a result of that, they got really fired up, and the choir started singing. And, uh, and, uh, and, I, and then I never did anything else. Then I just sat down. It was one of the best, shortest sermons I ever preached. They had one line, won't heaven be a wonderful place, said everything going, and that was it. We, you might have wished for that this morning. But anyway, they, uh, when he, there was a lady called Grandma Somebody, Granny you know, Granny Heartacre or wherever she was, and uh, a heartbreaker. And um, why did you have to be a heartbreaker? All right. Um, so all the time in the singing and the worship, she was moving, man. This lady was everywhere, all up and down the aisle. She, I was sitting near her, and she would move, and she got excited, and she was all over the place. And I was thinking to myself, you know, cut it out. I mean, it's, it, you know... It, enough's enough, you know, you know me dancing like this is really annoying me and everything else, and, and I started to judge the lady, you know, I said, yeah, she's doing a show, and she'll probably fall asleep when the pastor speaks, and you know, all that kind of thing, well, she sat in front of me, and he got to verse 3, 
and he got to verse 3, and he was quoting from the King James Version. And I remember he let out this amazing, He shall be. He shall be like a tree. And Granny, man, two rows in front of me, she stood straight up in the middle of his sermon. She said, shall, that means certainty. It means absolute certainty. You're Christian light. You're not a Christmas tree, right? Christmas trees get cut down, they get stuck in a thing, and they just fall apart. It's intensely annoying. They go all over the place. And you, I don't care what bag they give you, it's a nightmare with those things when you're hang, hauling out of your house. That's a different subject. And the ornaments on there are hung on or hanged on. They're hanging on. They're attached. They're not organic. They're not organic. And you see... The Christian life is not as a result of an act of Congress. The shall here is the shall of the empowering of the Spirit of God by the Word of God. It is the result of abiding in the vine, John 15. It is as a result of allowing our feet to go down deep into the streams. As a stream is to a tree, so the Scriptures are to the Christian. And the, and the tree draws up resources through its roots, and it produces leaves. It is an organic event. It is absolutely certain unless the tree is dead. And so says the psalmist, happiness is a fruitful business. What will your life be like? It will bring forth its fruit in season. In the midst of temptation, God will grant to us purity as we walk in obedience. In days of suffering, He gives to us patience. In times of prosperity and benefit, he reminds us of the nature of godly joy. Indeed, he says, the leaves of these people do not wither, and whatever he does prospers. Well, wait a little minute. Does that sound a little bit like a prosperity gospel? Whatever he does prospers? Most of us are immediately going back from this one now. Oh, oh. We heard about that prosperity stuff. That's not. That, we, that, that, I don't think that should be in there. I don't know. Let me tell you something. Turn with me just for a moment to Mark chapter ten. I want to show you something, and then I'll then I'll counterbalance it. But I want you to notice this. This is Jesus, Mark chapter ten, verse twenty-nine. Peter makes this great protestation. He says, "Jesus, we've left everything to follow you." That's verse twenty-eight. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will, re- will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, Sisters, mothers, childrens, children and fields, and with them persecutions. For all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And in the age to come, eternal life. Now don't let us be so concerned in reacting to what is a biblical heresy to create a little heresy of our own. It may be that for us to take up our cross and follow Christ will be to live in obscurity, will be to live in dreadful poverty, and will will be to waste away. God may have that for us, but it may not be that. I told you before when I've come here that at the age of 17 or 18, I determined what I was going to do, how much I was going to earn, what I was going to drive, and who my wife was going to be. And I just said God was waiting for the signature to come back on the facts. God tore it all up, give me a blank sheet, and we started from there. But this morning, young people, I have, in one sense, left my mother, my father, my brothers and sisters. I don't want to make a fuss about her or anything, but I didn't come to America except in a sense of divine urgency. For the last ten and a half years, I have lived here in an act of obedience, enjoyable obedience, but nevertheless obedience. 
Many of you have lived that out. You come from missionary families. You have got a background in those things. You understand it. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He is able to make up to us the gap. He gives to me mothers all across the place. I lost my mom when I was 20 years old. I got all these women all across America. They tell me, I'm your American mom. I say, you can't be. I already have one. They say, well, I'll be your California American mom. Then I got one in Wisconsin. I got one in Ohio. He gave me all these mothers. They write me notes. They pray for me. He took my mother to glory. Give me all these mothers. Give me brothers and sisters. I miss my sisters like fury. I love my sisters with a passion. I'm here, they're there. I want to go and have tea with them. I can't have tea with them. It's three and a half miles to three and a half thousand miles to get a cup of tea. That's a long way to go for a cup of tea. I can't do it. And so the fact of the matter is that when we commit our lives unreservedly to God, the promises of God's word remain true. Okay? So there is an immediate impact fruitful, immediate impact to living in obedience to God's Word. We need to understand it. We need to face it realistically. And we needn't push things like this always to the ultimate. Well, this doesn't mean anything now. This means when you get to heaven. Listen, it means when you get to heaven, and obviously so, but it's got to mean something now. And just as there is a curse wrapped up in wicked joy... There is a blessing concealed even in our godly sorrow. And some of our worst things may in time prove to be our best things. The guy we didn't marry, the job we didn't get, the exam we didn't pass. God is working for his good to prosper us on a different scale, by a different standard, according to his plan. Finally, happiness is not only a serious business and a biblical business and a fruitful business, but it is an eternal business. It takes us right into the realm of heaven. Notice the contrast in verse 4. The wicked are not trees, they're chaff. They're devoid of roots below and fruits above. They're devoid of the vigor and freshness of life. They're ultimately unstable and useless. They may now for a moment or two appear to be people of substance, but the day will reveal their true condition. They stand up for now and they maintain their cause. They hold their own. They take their stand. But on that day when they stand before Almighty God, they will bow before Him and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and confront Him as their judge. All their pomp, all their pride, all their power, all their plans, all their pleasures, all their hopes, all their boasting, all their Grammys will mean absolutely nothing in that day. See, there is a way that seemeth right to a man, and the end thereof is death. The way that seems right to the young man today is essentially a kind of form of uh, naturalized existentialism. Carpe diem, seize the day, you're only going around once. You better get it now because it might not be available tomorrow. There is a way that seems right to a man and the end thereof is death. There is a way that leads to everlasting and it's the way of life. The happy man plows a furrow, sows the seeds, reaps a harvest. The wicked man plows the sea, leaves a momentary shining trail behind him. The waves close over it and it's gone forever. So you see, the challenge is, by God's grace, to live happy lives in an unhappy world. Can I challenge you to do something? I remember being on the receiving end of these kind of talks. Once you discounted a significant part of it, you um, maybe had something left to chew over. Sometime in these days, as you've had the privilege of listening yesterday and today, just you alone, Take a walk, have a talk with the Lord. Dead honest, straightforward about your spiritual condition, about where you are in matters of practical holiness and the nature of happiness, about your own longings, your own hopes, your own dreams, your own aspirations, your own failures. Get used time like this when you have no classes. Find a broom closet and shut yourself in it and talk to the Lord and tell him. 
You know that famous hymn, Beneath the cross of Jesus I fain would take my stand, the shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. Where those tremendously challenging words, I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of your face. Content to let the world go by, to know no gain or loss. My sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. Let's pray together. In fact, will you stand with us as you're dismissed in prayer? Our gracious God, we stand before you. Write your word in our hearts. Anything that is unhelpful and distracting and just a nuisance, may it be banished from our recollection. And all that sets forward your plan and your purposes in our lives, may it be anchored in our thinking manifested in our behavior, demonstrated in our companionship. May the joy of the Lord Jesus be our strength. May we be serious, biblical, fruitful, eternal in our perspective so that all of our comings and goings may be touched with your splendor. Bless us, Lord, in the hours of this day, in times of casual conversation, in taking care of the various responsibilities of our lives. May we be a help and not a hindrance to one another. And may this day prove to be something of a spiritual milestone in our Christian walk. For we ask it with hungry, expectant hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll see you later on. Thank you very much.